Chapter 14 of The Campfire Girls at Sunrise Hill. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista. The Campfire Girls at Sunrise Hill by Margaret Vandercook. Chapter 14 Surprising the Camp. In the middle of the camping grounds on their return, the girls now beheld Miss Martha McMurtry waving a large kitchen spoon in somewhat the same fashion that a conductor uses his baton to direct the energies of his orchestra. Rushing from one spot to the other, her aides were engaged in putting fresh wood on one smoldering campfire, stirring up slumbering ashes in another, removing kettles to different points of vantage, and generally giving the impression that they were preparing for the feeding of an army however they were only getting ready for the entertainment of a few of their boy scout friends early that morning nan graham had been made to explain more fully the information bestowed on polly the day before it seemed that her father had been engaged to do odd jobs at the camp of the scouts several miles away from sunrise hill and had overheard the plan of the young men to test the mettle of the campfire girls, take them by surprise, bear down upon them without warning. That was the way to discover whether the girls were lolling about reading novels and eating sweets, as they suspected, or attending to the sterner duties of camp life. Subject them to the trial of preparing an impromptu meal for hungry guests. In short, see whether the effort of the girls to effect an organization similar in many respects to the boy scouts wasn't sheer bluff nothing had been said because of course it must have been so easy to surmise the amount of criticism and discussion that arose in woodford when the village learned of the decision of the first campfire girls club to spend the summer together in the woods and sternest of all critics were the brothers boy cousins and friends most of whom belonged to the Boy Scout brigades, spending most of their spare time and money in them. For, of course, the thing that was good for a boy was, for that very reason, bad for a girl. An age-old argument, beginning with the question of educating women at all, and extending now to their right to the vote. Curiously, John Everett, Margaret's brother, was at first more bitterly opposed to the campfire idea than anyone else in Woodford. Meg's place was at home. Every girl's was, even though there was no one at home with her. It was hard lines that his father had to be in Boston the greater part of the summer, and that he would be in camp. But he was not going to have Meg getting drowned or burned up or worn out without masculine protection away from home. Should any one of these misfortunes overtake her at home, why, somehow it would be different. But fortunately for Meg's summer happiness, her professor father did not share in his son's opinions, and after John had a long talk with Betty Ashton, he became, well, not convinced, but at least more open to conviction. Usually Betty did have this effect upon him, which was perhaps fortunate for them both. So John Everett might certainly be expected as one of the surprise party, and probably Jim Meade, Eleanor's brother Frank Wharton, and Ralph and Hugh Bowles, who belonged to the same group of friends besides. Well, 
It was the entire uncertainty in regard to the actual number of their visitors which was keeping the campfire girls so extraordinarily busy, their idea being to have everything prepared and hidden away, and then produced as though they were in the habit of having just such a magnificent supply of rations always on hand. Eleanor and Meg had made an Irish stew of half their week's supply of meat and vegetables. Esther, assisted by Juliet Field, had baked enough beans for feeding half Beacon Street, while Miss McMurtry herself had presided over the giant loaves of brown bread, which can be easily boiled in closed tins and make specially superior camp food. Upon Beatrice, Sylvia, and the unwelcome newcomer Nan Graham, had devolved the cleaning up of the campgrounds, and their work had been most thoroughly done but indeed no one could be accused of anything approaching sloth this morning when so much of their future reputation was at stake only edith norton had been unable to help because of her work in town but she hoped to be able to return to camp by noon so as not to miss the good times at eleven o'clock every bit of the work of preparation had been accomplished and nan's report had said that the scouts expected to appear just about the noon luncheon hour the food was hidden away in the kitchen tent, and the girls rearranged their costumes. Then, after posting Nan, Beatrice, and Sylvia as sentinels to give warning of the first approach of their guests, the other girls settled themselves into whatever occupations they considered might make the best impression. Eleanor got out the campfire logbook, whose cover she had previously decorated with a wonderful surprise appearing above the summit of a purple hill, and now began to illustrate some of the inside pages with scenes recalling the events of the past ten days. Molly's tastes were too domestic for any deception, so she went on with her pretty basket weaving, while Esther sat near her, studying the Indian song received the day before. However, the really impressive occupation was conceived and engineered by Polly's dramatic sense for she engaged Miss McMurtry and the rest of the girls in the mysteries of knot-tying, one of the difficult feats of camp craft, since there are a good many more varieties of knots than one has fingers. For example, there is the square knot, bowline, alpine, kite string, half-hitch, clove-hitch, for tying two ends together, and as many more for making knots at the end of a rope. And yet... Unless one happens to be a campfire girl, these comparatively simple accomplishments are entirely closed arts. Now everybody at Sunrise Camp is accounted for, excepting its solitary masculine member, Little Brother. During all the morning preparations, he had been a very difficult problem, but finally washed and arrayed in a stiff white Russian blouse, Meg conceived the brilliant idea of attaching him to the camp totem pole. The pole was simply a tree cleared of its branches at the present time, which the girls hoped later on to develop into a real Indian totem pole. But standing just a few yards in front of the group of tents, it formed a center for all eyes, and therefore seemed the best possible place for keeping a little boy always in sight. Little Brother was at first very happy, because he had with him the things he loved best, a discarded bathing shoe, a bottle of hard brown beans and an old cream whipper that made the most delectable noises as one turned it about. 
Indeed, so soothing did its noises become that on returning for the sixth time from her game to see that the small boy was safe, Meg discovered him fast asleep in a patch of sunshine on the grass. Five minutes before noon, Sylvia Wharton came running breathless with excitement from her sentry post. Dust was rising at some distance off in the curve of the lane where a path led across the fields to Sunrise Camp. Harder and faster the girls continued at their work, of course appearing superbly unconscious of possible interruption, and yet ten minutes later, when Edith Norton returned from the village on her bicycle along the way of Sylvia's warning, there was a sort of general let-down feeling, though no one confessed to it. Then half an hour passed. Noon was in the background of the day, and hunger was laying fierce hold on the camp members. Their practice of knot-tying abruptly ceased. Eleanor put her book and paints aside with a sense of relief. Molly and Esther arose, sighing. "'We have got to have our own lunch, girls. We simply can't wait any longer,' Miss McMurtry insisted." and no one seemed sufficiently inspirited to discuss the question when, unexpectedly, a cry from Meg brought everybody to life. Little brother had disappeared. In spite of the professional knot-tying, he had managed to slip away, leaving his moorings still attached to the pole. Ten seconds afterwards, as many girls were searching for him, only Esther remaining behind with Miss McMurtry. As his small footprints led directly to the grove of pines, his favorite playing ground, the entire party sought him there, and after running about for an eighth of a mile searching and calling, they came across the young man throned high on the shoulders of a six-foot scout, clothed in khaki and leather boots, but wearing a perfectly absurd Indian headdress and false face. He was followed by ten other youths gotten up in equally absurd fashions for the complete bewilderment of the campfire girls. "'Do take those ridiculous things off at once, John Everett,' Betty demanded first, as she happened to be in advance of the other girls. And on John's immediately complying with her request, his companions followed his example. Then, gaily, the entire procession made for camp. But as Miss McMurtry and Esther heard them coming when some distance off, they did not seem particularly surprised at their advance. Indeed, the ridiculous fact was that the scouts failed altogether to mention that their intention had been to steal into Sunrise Camp unperceived, and the girls were equally negligent in not expressing more profound amazement at their wholly unlooked-for visit. Only there was one special bit of surprise for Betty Ashton, and possibly for Esther as well. Richard Ashton had come down from Portsmouth to find out how Betty was getting on, and on hearing of the scouting expedition had joined their party. Of course, he only spoke to Esther in the same fashion that he did to his sister's other friends. Nevertheless, she felt more at her ease, perhaps because he was her one acquaintance in the group of young men. And Polly also had a surprise, though not so pleasant a one for the youth whom she had tried to slay, like David did Goliath, was one of their Boy Scout guests, and Polly wondered if it were her duty to inquire in regard to his wounded feelings, or to pretend that today's more formal meeting was, in reality, their first. End of chapter 14 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista